What is the reason for the season? A simple Google search will prove quite revealing. While it might come as a surprise to many fundamentalist Christians who claim that there are secular forces waging a war on Christmas, a new Pew Research study found that the war is actually over. Secular progressives have won. While most Americans participate in Christmas, this particular study found that a majority of Americans believe that Christmas has very little to do with the birth of Jesus. 90% of Americans will celebrate Christmas this year, but only 50% even regard Christmas as a religious holiday. And what's interesting is when you begin to look at the numbers, the number of people who accept Christmas as a Christian holiday, that number is in rapid decline. While 70% of Americans say they attended a religious service during Christmas when they were children, today, only 54% say they plan to attend a Christmas service this year. When people were asked in the study to describe what they most looked forward to during the holidays, 69% of folks cited spending time with family and friends. But this is what's interesting. Only 11% of people said they looked forward to the religious elements of Christmas, 11%. When asked what they disliked about Christmas, one-third cited the obvious commercialization of the season, while only 6% of Americans lamented the de-emphasis of religion when it came to Christmas. Basically, the 6% of people that care all watch Bill O'Reilly the decline becomes even more dramatic when you begin to look at the numbers generationally. Adults that are over 60, according to the Pew poll, 66% of them believe Christmas is a religious holiday. 60% will attend a service on Christmas or Christmas Eve, and 76% of this age bracket believe in the virgin birth. However, the same poll done amongst youngsters those between 18 and 29 found that only 39% believed Christmas is a religious holiday. That's a decline of 27%. 46% say they will attend a religious service on Christmas or Christmas Eve. That's down 14%. 66% believe in the virgin birth. That's down 10%. And not only that, but even among Christians... This Pew poll found that young people are more likely to view Christmas as being a cultural holiday and not a Christian one. Now, though by no means I would claim that this is the main contributor to our de-emphasis of religion when it comes to Christmas, I do think that we can admit this morning that what we see happening during this season, <laughs> the video that we showed, the craziness that we find during this season, it makes it difficult to keep the real reason for the season in our minds when there's so much other stuff vying for our attention. It's difficult to keep in mind the religious reason for the season when there exists such a large disconnect 
between the humble story of the birth of Jesus Christ and the commercial juggernaut that Christmas has become in America. The same study revealed that the way the religious and the secular celebrate Christmas is almost identical if you remove religious connotations. Though it's true, those who celebrate Christmas as a religious event are more apt to attend a religious service, 73% to 30%. Though they're more apt to believe in the virgin birth, 91% to 50%. The differences between Christians and progressives, when it comes to how we enjoy Christmas, the difference is in there. 86% of people in both groups will claim that what they enjoy most about the holiday is gathering with family and friends, 86%. 86% will also participate, whether you're a Christian or you're a progressive, in giving gifts. There's no difference. This is what blew me away. There is an identical share within each group, 33%, that will pretend to get a visit from Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. Whether you see Christmas as a religious holiday or a secular holiday, both groups participate in Santa Claus identically. Now, the results of diminishing Jesus from Christmas, in my opinion, shouldn't come as any surprise. In the month of December, alcohol consumption increases by 40%, with 14% of those polled admitting that they actually ended up drinking more than they intended. Shockingly, with the stress of the season. Is it any wonder that heart-related deaths increase 5% during the holidays? Murder rates jump up 4.2% in December, with an astounding one-third more incidents of domestic assault occurring on Christmas Day than any other day of the year. Should it be a surprise then that January 8th, is known as the busiest day of the year for divorce lawyers, when one in five couples will inquire about divorce, citing specifically the pressures of Christmas. Christmas kills more marriages in America than maybe almost any other thing. Roughly one in 20 Americans, that's 4%, say there is nothing about Christmas or the holidays that they look forward to, except perhaps Christmas being over. 18% of Americans agreed with the statement, I dread Christmas. Our question this morning, why do we celebrate Christmas? It's true that in the fourth century, Pope Julius I proclaimed December 25th to be the official celebration date for the birth of Christ. He did this, by the way, without any zip, zilch, nada, no biblical evidence to support his claim. History also is evident that he did this for one reason, to adopt and absorb pagan celebrations concerning the winter solace. This morning, I want to contrast the holiday traditions with the implications that we find in the Bible presented for the first Christmas. You know, the interesting thing about Christmas is that we're all free to pick out our own reason for the season. Yeah, it's true. Christmas, Santa Claus, trees, lights, we can find all of them rooted in pagan customs way back when. Yes, 
Christmas in America is very much a commercial holiday. But beyond all of that, we do happen to choose that day, just a few days from now, as the official day that we recognize Jesus' birth. And you, you hear it often, that you can pick any time to celebrate Christmas, that you can take a moment to, to recognize the birth of Jesus. It's not limited to one day. We call it a Christmas season because we're supposed to be doing it all the time. My point this morning is why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, there's some real results when it's just about the holidays or the traditions or our customs, which can be fun, versus the implications if we cut through all that to see what happened with Jesus' birth. If the reason for the season is only fun tales of St. Nick, Rudolph, elves from the North Pole, angry elves, you know, they're from the South Pole, Frosty the Snowman. If your time is only occupied decorating evergreen trees or hanging lights or strategically positioning mistletoe, I spend most of my time doing that. If your focus is only on consuming copious amounts of eggnog or gingerbread men or overfrosted cookies, if your holiday is dominated by listening to holiday jazz or watching bad movies on A&E or wearing ugly sweaters, if your time is dominated getting gifts, giving gifts, or as most of us do, returning gifts, you will find yourself, in my opinion, missing out on what is significant about this day. Luke chapter 2 Beginning with verse 1, we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Canarius was governing Syria. And so everyone went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, and he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke begins his narrative by telling us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. And since Joseph and Mary, both were descendants of King David, they were required to make a journey out of Galilee, the city of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem. Now, the inconvenience of this particular journey for Mary and Joseph is obvious. Luke tells us that Mary, Joseph's betrothed wife, was with child. As difficult as the hundred mile or so journey would be, a doctor's note wasn't getting Mary out of the trip. You can imagine it was painstaking. Poor old Joseph had no choice but to load up an extremely pregnant woman and travel, mostly on foot, to be registered. Now, as brutal as the trip might have been, upon arriving, things progress from bad to worse. You can imagine that they finally get to the city. 
Mary's ready to kick back, get her feet off the ground, a nice feather pillow, a Tempur-Pedic mattress. I mean, these things are in her mind, a bubble bath at the least. She's with child. And they get to Bethlehem thinking maybe they get a little reprieve. And what do they find? That there was no room in the inn. They're forced to set up shop in a stable. Now, in our minds, we kind of think, oh, well, that's fun. A little cabin up on the hillside, nice fireplace, a stable. Can't go wrong with that. When we think of a stable, many of us have in our minds that they kind of were set up in a Thomas Kincaid-like, picturesque, lean-to on a starry rolling hillside, right? And yet this was not what the stable was at all. A stable in this day was nothing more than a cave that had been hewn out of a hill filled with nothing but other animals and things that animals typically do. I mean, this was gross, nasty. Imagine the smell. There's no room in the inn. You're poor Joe. You got to go tell Mary, hey, you know that bath you were wanting? That's not going to work, but I did secure us a place. And she's like, well, where? Go around back, looking up on the hill, and you see a hole in the earth. That's where we're going to chill. I mean, I feel bad for the man. And I can see his trepidation when we're told that while they were there, where? The stable, that the days were completed for Mary to deliver. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a, in a manger. There's Joe. It's bad enough you had to make the journey. It gets worse that there's no room in the inn. And now, I mean, you're sweating bullets, thinking, please, not here, not now. Mary breaks the news. Honey, the baby's coming. Uh, imagine the details that are not mentioned, but just kind of wrapped up in the phrase. She brought forth her firstborn son. There's no doctors, there's no nurses other than Joseph. I sympathize with this. With the birth of, of Quincy, there in the room, I thought I was prepared for what was going to happen. I was not prepared for what was going to happen. And as soon as that little guy started coming, I decided to quickly take a peek, and I turned white. I don't do well with that. Then poor nurse turns to me, and she's like, Mr. Adams, are you okay? I said, ma'am, I have one main goal for today, and that is not to require medical attention myself. <laughs> I will be okay. So I was the contraction monitor guy. You know, I was the guy just obsessed with that. Imagine you're Joseph. He's never had a child before. Mary's never done this before. This is all new. And there they are in a cave with other animals. It's not sanitary. Joseph's like, what in the world am I doing? Mary's like, what in the world am I doing? The scene is absolutely crazy. Now, one would have thought that such a monumental event in the history of humanity I mean, this is, by the way, the birth of God, the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You would have thought 
that Luke would have given us maybe a few more details. And yet, instead of taking a few verses to elaborate on the details of the manger scene, Luke does something weird. He abruptly shifts to the most unexpected of directions. Read with me, verse 8. Now, it's kind of like you're hanging on every word, you're wanting more details, but now, he shifts, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill towards men. Now, Luke has brought us from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He's taken us from the streets of the city to a stable and the country. He's given us just a glimpse into the maturation of the virgin birth. Jesus has been born. The scene, though brief, is awesome. But instead of allowing his readers a chance to soak up the significance of the moment, Luke quickly transitions from the incredible significance of the stable manger with baby Jesus to what? A tranquil, solitude, field full of shepherds. Now, when we think of the shepherds, in a lot of ways, our 21st century church has so culturalized and sterilized the shepherds that we really don't know who they were, and thus the significance of the first people hearing the word being shepherds. 19th century Jewish scholar, he was a Christian. His name was Alfred Ederstein. He wrote a book titled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in the book, he made this claim that the shepherds were outcasts because of their necessary isolation from religious ordinances and manner of life. The shepherds, The shepherds were not upstanding model citizens that we've made them out to be or those that we want our sons to play in a live nativity. Shepherds, they occupied the lowest rungs of all society. To be a shepherd meant that your life had to have so unraveled, so fallen apart, that your future was so bleak that you had just decided, well, I guess I'm going to run off and be a shepherd. Shepherds in the first century, they were known to be drunks, to be addicts. They were vagabonds, sexually perverse. They were known to be pickpocketers. These men were dropouts, bums. They were deviants. Think of shepherds. Not how we typically consider them, but, but for a moment, Consider shepherds to be a biker gang of outlaws, straight out the show, sons of anarchy. That is who the shepherds were. These guys were not the people that mothers dreamed their sons would grow up to be one day. They were rough. 
They were outlaws. Not only is it weird that Luke prematurely leaves, that he abandons the glorious scene of the manger, but then really it's bizarre. It's bizarre that he transfers our attention from the birth of Jesus to a group of shepherds looking after their flocks by night, who by this hour, more than likely, are half past hammered. Imagine the reaction. There they are. It's a normal night. They're sitting there. You've got the, the, the sheep in the fields, a fire keeping them warm. Boom! There's a bright light out of the dark night. An angel of the Lord stood before them, and we're told the glory of the Lord shone around them. Literally, the phraseology here is that the brightness of God. It wasn't like they were here, darkness behind, light in front of them. They were engulfed with the light. It's kind of like how you would imagine an alien encounter to be. Like, bright light comes beaming down and it engulfs me. And it's like, beam me up, Scotty. This is what's about to happen. They're freaking out. I can see them. Immediately, they're disoriented. Their eyes have adjusted to the darkness. And then, boom, bright light in the eyes. They see a figure. They can't make it out. It's an angel. I would be, as we're told, greatly afraid if I'm these men. It's either aliens or God's about to do me in. Like, this is not normal. Now, we know the scene. It's hectic. Why? Because the first words that the angel brings up, his first greetings, salutation, is aimed at what? Calming their obvious fear. He says to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And then he explains what this great, great news would be. He says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, knowing what we know about the shepherds, it really, to me, is incredible that God would hand-select a group of shepherds for two purposes, right? Why? First, they're the first recipients of the news that a Savior has been born. And then God has included them in the story for them to get the news first and then be what? to be the welcoming committee. If things couldn't get worse for Joseph, a long journey, a hard matter earth for his family, he has played doctor and nurse, he has delivered a baby, he, Mary, they are taxed. And then who shows up? Shepherds. Joseph has to be thinking, come on, man. Are you kidding me? He's not expecting them to be like worshiping God. He's expecting them to be robbed, to be killed. If shepherds showed up at your door, that's not a good thing. Now, I wonder. I wonder what the angel's reaction was. Here he is. He's been told his job and the grand story would be to bring the news 
that God has become man. If you're the angel, you're pretty pumped up about that, right? You've been hand-selected for the job. You're the messenger. Imagine the reaction. You've been preparing for this moment when the, the sky peels back and boom, you're on, only to find that it's some sheep, mostly empty field, and shepherds. Like to me, I would have been expecting maybe a bunch of priests with the backdrop being the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, it's the seat of religion. That's a good place to let the world know that God has come as a man. And maybe if it's not the temple, if I'm the angel, I'm, I'm at least expecting that it would be like the Colosseum in Rome. That you're the angel and you're letting the, the seat of power and politics know that there's a new king, a great king that's been born. If not the temple or the Colosseum, maybe the Pantheon there in Athens, the seat of learning, the intellectuals, the great minds of the day. But no, God chose that the first people that needed to hear and the people he wanted coming to welcome his son into the world were shepherds. You see, though shifting from the glory of the manger to a dark field full of shepherds is bizarre. Contrasting the majesty of God with the sad plight of humanity was not accidental. As a matter of fact, it was divinely intentional that the shepherds were picked first, for it perfectly illustrated the ultimate mission and purpose of, of God. You see, a dark field, a group of obvious sinners, deviants, it presented a perfect picture of the world. It presented a picture of the outlook of the world prior to the arrival of Jesus. The world had been darkened by sin, rebellion against God. And though the shepherds were maybe the chief sinners of the day, all sin in the eyes of God is the same. That's how God viewed humanity, as lost as these shepherds. And it's with this backdrop that the angel does something fascinating. He breaks through the darkness with the news that what? There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These shepherds were Jews. They understood the promises of the Messiah. They understood the, the, the role of, of, of the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence to point that these men, that the sheep that they were presently occupying and taking care of in Bethlehem were specifically used for the sacrifices of the temple that they made it their job, though they couldn't participate, that, that they understood sacrifice. They understood the importance of sacrifice. They understood sin and the consequences of sin. They understood that society had given up on them, that they were outcasts, that there was no hope for them. And in the darkness, there's light. And what's the word? There's a savior for you. I mean, really, Jesus' mission, it was to shine a bright light into a dark world. That, that Jesus came to save those who are lost, to redeem the sinner, to reach the outcast and the downtrodden. Can you really think of a better place to begin than a field full of shepherds? I can't. God purposefully chose to include these men in his story 
the story of his son right from the beginning. A night that began most like every other night would be radically interrupted by the revelation that God wanted to involve his son and their lives, and that is truly good tidings of great joy. You know, the ramifications of the fact that God deliberately chose shepherds, the sons of anarchy crew, God chose them to include them in the story of his son, which means that if God would choose them, then maybe he can choose us. Like if God would choose the chiefest of sinners to be a part of the story of his son, that maybe we're not beyond also the love and the reach and the grasp of a God. In many ways, whether it's by intention or by accident, many of the traditions of Christmas have become characterized by their unapologetic de desire to claim the impossible as truth. You know, let me give you an example. That old Saint Nick possesses omniscient knowledge of everyone in the world. That Saint Nick knows who's naughty and he knows who's nice. And so he can custom tailor rewards based upon his judgment. We know that's an impossible claim. Haven't we learned that only the NSA has that kind of intrusion into our lives? I mean, let's be real. One diabetic fat man who has an insatiable appetite for cookies, flying around through the air, distributing gifts in one night for the world's seven billion people, that's an impossible claim. I mean, it won't be possible till Amazon works out that whole drone delivering gifts thing and then maybe it can happen. Mistletoe. Mistletoe providing this supernatural force field by which a woman will surrender all willpower and be magically compelled to kiss a man regardless of looks or breath is an impossible claim. I mean, really, if mistletoe had this kind of effect, we wouldn't have as many desperate single men in our fellowship. Though Christmas is admittedly full of all kinds of impossible claims, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. I feel bad for the reindeer. Why didn't anyone ever call to get the poor thing a veterinarian? I mean, he's had this cold for years, like over and over and over again. There's these impossible claims that we're to accept as truth, and then you get to Christmas, and really, there's a claim that takes the cake. The idea that God, 2,000 years ago, came to earth, became flesh, dwelt among us, that's nuts. I mean, really, let's be honest. God, as a babe, resting in a manger who would grow up to be the savior of all mankind, that is a pretty outlandish claim. But, and this is what I love, as God did with the shepherds, he doesn't ask us to believe the claim with blind faith. Rather, God invites us to do what? To undertake a quest, to embark on a journey, to authenticate the claim. God invites men and women, shepherds, to do what? To go and to see for ourselves. 
very quickly, note the progression of the angel's announcement. Look at it. First, there was this statement of fact. There is born to you this day. There is. This was an, a claim of absolute truth. The reality of the event was not debatable. It wasn't up for discussion. It wasn't up for question. The reality that Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, had indeed been born in Bethlehem. Regardless of your perspective or opinion, there is born to you this day. So there was a statement of fact. Then, note, there was an invitation to authenticate this will be the sign to you. It's kind of like the angel is telling them. Though the birth of Jesus is a fact, you don't have to take my word for it. I now invite you to do what? Go and look for yourself. And then the angel actually goes one step further by challenging these shepherds to search for a particular sign. Hey, there has been born to you this day in the city, a savior, the Christ, the Lord. Don't take my word for it. Go and find out for yourself. Go look. And then this will be the sign. This will be the sign. It was literally, it was a point of authentication. It was something that would validate the claim. It would dispel natural skepticism. And then finally, there was a promise. There is born to you this day. This will be the sign you, what, will find a babe. The phrase you will find is actually one Greek word that literally means you will find out for yourself. The angel promises that if the shepherds would accept his invitation to seek out the proof, the evidence for themselves that a savior had been born, that they would discover that the claim was indeed authentic. I love it about God. For as we see with the shepherds, God is always presenting truth, not as a cumbersome pill that he forces us to swallow against our will, but God presents truth as something he then invites us to go out and authenticate for ourselves. And so it was. So it was. They had a choice now. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds they said to one another, okay, let us now go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds, but Mary kept all these things. She pondered them in her heart. And so the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. The angel disappears. The shepherds, a little relieved that they weren't struck dead, glad to see their surroundings, readjusting back to the darkness. They kind of do really nothing more than a simple cost-benefit evaluation. I mean, what else were they going to do that night? Not to mention an angel had just appeared. That doesn't happen every day. They just decide, you know what? What do we have to lose? Let's go see. And they respond to the invitation and end up finding themselves included in the greatest story ever told. 
to the point that we're talking about them this morning. After recognizing the significance of what had taken place, the shepherds, they made a resolute determination to act upon what they had been told, God's word. A challenge had been issued by the angel, go and see. And they concluded that after what they had just witnessed, a step of faith was only reasonable. And then we're told that they came with haste and they found the babe lying in the manger. Now these men, they're equipped with nothing more than limited knowledge that there was a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger somewhere in Bethlehem. Now, they're given an important clue that it was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, all normal, but you don't typically lay babies in a manger. And so they can kind of, you know, work it down to this is, they're not in a, in a hotel, they're not in the inn, that they're probably out in a cave or a field. And so they're going around looking for the babe with haste. These men engaged a search, a quest, with tenacity by urgently acting upon what they knew. A step of faith, it was only reasonable. They took what they knew and they acted upon it. They searched for the child. The phrase, they came with haste, it denotes eager intentness. The shepherds were determined to see if what the angel had indeed said was true. And then Luke continues, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the things which were told them concerning the child. The word Luke uses, they had seen him. It doesn't mean that they had just like laid their eyes upon him. It, it doesn't mean that they were going around and, oh, we see him, let's go back, cool. No, it's, it's the word itself, it gives this idea that they perceived who Jesus really was. That it wasn't that they saw a babe lying in a manger like the angel had said, but they saw the babe as a savior, as Christ the Lord. They perceived, it should better be translated now when they perceived who he was, we find this reaction. So they, they urgently act upon faith with limited revelation. They enter a stable and they not only saw Jesus, but they believed what they had seen, that this was their savior. We know they believe because of the reaction that we find to the encounter. Luke tells us they, they leave the stable. We don't know how long they're there. Mary's pretty tired. Baby Jesus also kind of gone through a traumatic experience. Joseph as well. Kind of calling it an early night. The shepherds leave. And what do they do? They enter Bethlehem and they proceed to tell anyone and everyone who would listen what had just happened to them, what God had just revealed to them. I don't know who listened. They're running around. People are pulling their kids back inside, boarding up the windows, because it's shepherds. There was a stigma. Oh no, there's a raid of shepherds. They come riding through town on their Harleys. Like it's back up, trouble but they're telling anyone and everyone about God, about these angels. They're thinking, wow, these guys are a little more drunk than normal. They're talking about this pronouncement, how they had searched and found a baby in a stable, that the baby was God. You know, in many ways, 
all the shepherds are doing is sharing their testimony, their own experience with God. They had witnessed something. A babe, right? Swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a savior, Christ the Lord. And as a witness, witnessing became a natural manifestation of their encounter with God. And then we're told that they returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. <laughs> After an encounter with Jesus, Luke describes these this two reactions to the things they had heard and seen. They glorified God. The word means it, it describes an attitude before God, that they were exalting God and from their attitude was an action, a manifestation, that they were praising God. They were exalting his name, that they were singing. The experience changed their lives. But note, after all of this, these shepherds, they returned. Where? The same dark field with the same campfire that no doubt they have to stoke back to life with the same sheep. They returned to their same environment. They returned. You know, it's interesting to me that though these men's lives were changed forever, I'm convinced of it, their environment didn't change. Jesus, it's interesting what happens when we encounter Jesus. God never saves us to remove us from our environment. But Jesus saves us so that we might shine in the darkness of our environment. This incredible encounter with Jesus, and then they're sent right back to the same field. But I'm sure that those fields were seen in a totally different way. Those sheep are not just sheep, they're an audience to their song. I'm sure that if you could have recorded their singing, it would have been as horrible as a Duck Dynasty Christmas album. Off key, off tone. Imagine Cy Robertson singing Deck the Halls, right? Why should we celebrate Christmas? Sure, there's all kinds of other reasons. You can celebrate Christmas because of Santa Claus and the fun stories and the movies. But for me, I think we should celebrate Christmas because God sent his son to shepherds. He didn't send his son to just the religious. He didn't send his son to just the political power brokers of the day or the great intellectuals. That Jesus sent his son to shepherds. That's what we recognize on Christmas. That's what the first Christmas looked like. You see, in shifting from the glory of the manger to a dark field full of shepherds, we find a picture of Jesus' mission coupled with a glorious invitation. On Christmas, we are afforded an opportunity to take a moment, to, to get away from the craziness and to recognize the incredible reality that the majesty of God, it entered the sad plight of humanity. The true reason for the season is that Jesus, 
both a Savior and a Christ, he set aside the majesty of heaven to come to earth as a babe to enter your fray and to invite you to be included in his story. If you find yourself this morning, it's been a long year, if you find yourself feeling unworthy, if like Buddy the Elf, you see yourself as a cotton-headed nitty-muggin, if you've bought into the lie that whatever you've done, maybe what you're doing, places you beyond the reach of God, that God wouldn't want to include you, you're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You're not righteous enough. If, if that what you've done or what you're doing places you, be, like, God wouldn't want anything to do with me. Please, seeing the shepherds of Bethlehem as an illustration, take heart. For Jesus came to earth with a simple mission to shine in the darkness and involve himself in the lives of sinners. The question you should consider this morning is really simple. Why do you celebrate Christmas? Why do you celebrate it? Do you celebrate only the cultural traditions that dominate the American landscape? Which, by the way, I think you should enjoy. Enjoy the tales of Santa Claus and the trees and the eggnog and the movies and the sweaters. Have fun. But is that why you celebrate? That's the question. Do you find time to celebrate a deeper, more spiritual implication that's found on what occurred that day, the birth of Jesus? This morning, the angel is speaking through the darkness. <laughs> He's maybe even crying out over the Muppet Christmas special. And he's saying to you very, something very simple. This angel speaking into your world, telling you, for there was born to you in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then I'd like to echo his invitation to come and see. And so, Father, 